Welcome to The Blind Spot, a podcast where we explore human instinctual drives through the lens of the Enneagram, nonviolent communication, and resonant healing with personal stories from individuals living real human lives. My name is Karen Nance, self-pres, social, sexual blind, three-wing two, with 371 trifix, and ENTP cognitive preferences. I hope you enjoy these stories. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Blind Spot. I hope that you enjoyed the episode that Belinda and I did on the attachment types, and I have her back here today to talk about the frustration types. And in case you didn't listen to the two prior episodes that I've done with Belinda, I will advise you to go back and check those out. They're great, and you can learn a lot more about Belinda. Um, In brief, uh, Belinda is a longtime teacher in the Enneagram community. Uh, She specializes in object relations and has an upcoming course that's being launched in February, and the link to register for that will be in the show notes again today. And we last met to dive a little bit more deeply into the attachment types, and today we're going to spin around to frustration. So good morning, Belinda. Thanks for coming back again. (laughs) Good morning. Thank you. I enjoy our conversations. They're so fun for me because I think that this topic is really complicated and there are so many different nuances and ways to look at it. And the one thing I want to say is that in these short episodes that we have on these different um, approaches, we're kind of covering the upper level view. But as I think about object relations, it just feels like you can tease down into so many different layers and so many different nuances. And is this why it's really fascinated you for, I think, decades now? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I've been teaching object relations for about eight years, maybe nine years now. And I keep teaching because I keep learning so much. And every course seems to open up some more material And it's why the Enneagram is so fascinating, because as a true wisdom teaching, it has more depth and more depth. And sometimes people say, and I don't know if you encountered this, that they early on find the Enneagram frustrating because it's so complicated. And I always say, like with anything, we start at the beginning, we take it slowly, So with object relations, we start with that simple grid that we've talked about, and we can talk about again, if you like, and we keep building on it so that if we've got a good foundation, then we can keep building and it's solid. Yeah, I love that. And I think it's interesting, though, you know, this is my introverted thinking, always wanting to go back, is that even that foundation, though, sometimes we discover things that we tweak a little bit. Like, have you noticed that at all? Like, or do you feel like there are some super core principles that um, are, you know, Russ is talking a little bit about personal truth, relative truth, essential truth. And I like this concept because mm-hmm. for me, like, I kind of can be like, oh, yeah, that feels really true for me. And then, like, mm-hmm. when I talk about object relations, I can talk with a person that's having like a theory and there's a group of us that are all agreeing, oh yeah, this is how we're looking at it. But then I find that there's always still a little wiggle room in almost everything we do because Mm. essential truth, which is that depth that you're talking about, that there's always a little bit of mystery there, don't you think? 
Absolutely. When I talk about learning foundations, I'm talking about the basics like dominant affects, primary others, archetypal figures in our young lives, the nurturing figure, usually the mother, the protecting figure, usually the father, the family figure, which is home and family clan. Yeah, Those are archetypal. How we interpret the archetypes will unfold the more we mature. And so the same with um, the dominant affects of attachment and frustration and rejection. We can name those, but our understanding of what they mean will continue to ripen, if you will, so that it's richer and sweeter (laughs) as we go along. And what I'm loving about this term object relation that I just want to highlight for the listeners, because I'm assuming that most of the people listening to this podcast have some exposure to object relations. So we'll review that high up piece in just a minute. But I really love diving into the nuances because I don't have an opportunity to talk to experts about this all the time. So this is also a platform where the things that are like turning about in my mind, I get curious. And so when I'm thinking about an object, like that is sort of this symbolic other. So when we're talking about the nurturing object, in my case, that's my mom. But as we said, it isn't always a gendered mother, female When I'm thinking about the protective figure, I'm thinking about my dad. But once again, um, there are other people in our lives that sometimes provide protective figures. And then when we're talking about the family or the community, that's sort of this symbolic object, even though that's not a specific person that's being represented by a larger collective. Do I have that in a frame that you use or do you want to tweak that at all? Yeah, exactly. And I want to speak to the term object, because in the the initial theorists were talking about infants relating to others. And at that stage in our conceptual development, other people are objects. And even Martin Buber, in his work with I, it, and I, thou, spoke to the fact that other people in our internal frame of reference, often are perceived as objects. And indeed, when we're really young, we perceive ourselves as an object, that the capacity to recognize the richness of our own internal lives and then to perceive that the other has a similar depth and richness. So the other becomes a thou. So it moves from an object, which is just something in our lives that causes pleasure or pain, to an other, as a person, to a thou, as a a deep empathetic relationship with the other. And what I'm thinking of when I hear you say that is that even as adults, you know, we can get called out on objectifying others when we get into Mm -hmm. structure. Because yes. we start operating a certain object relation or a certain That's pattern. Exactly right. And mm-hmm. now we've lost the sense of the humanity and the other. And we're all doing that to each other all the time, which is why right. we all have this experience of being objectified. But what mm-hmm. I love about this topic 
is that for me, it's so helpful because when I'm noticing that I'm having the thought that I'm being objectified, I can open me up to remembering that this person is running their pattern because they're sort of hooked by something. And then I don't have to take that objectification so personally. And if what I'm wanting is a deeper, more shared humanity type of connection, can I sort of put myself in that other person's shoes, knowing what it is that I know about them, imagining what it is that might be hooking them and kind of meet them there and then invite Mm -hmm. me into a space that is more connecting? Is that sort of Mm -hmm. how people can work with this? You've just described empathy. Mm -hmm. And what deep empathy requires is for us to recognize our own object relations at Mm -hmm. play. Mm -hmm. And then we realize that we're not characters in somebody else's drama, and they're not characters in our drama. Yeah. So like, for example, as a three... I have this attachment to nourishment or the nourishing figure. And Mm -hmm. specifically because I'm heart-centered, it's that gaze. It's like, how are you looking at me? Are you looking at me with approval and acknowledgement and seeing value in me or telling me I'm great in some way, approving? And Mm -hmm. so if I'm noticing that I'm starting to get my undies in a bunch because that's not happening in the way that I want, then I can drop in and be like, oh... When have I lost connection with my own sense of my value and the fact that I appreciate this about me and I'm acknowledging this about me and it's okay that I want this other person to join that space with me, but also remember that they may be having a different set of needs relevant to what their object relation is and what they're needing in that moment. And Mm -hmm. so it can be frustrating, I think, if we're the one that's sort of recognizing what's happening and the other person is still caught in their dance. And this is one of the reasons why I love wisdom communities, because at least we have this opportunity to note what we're perceiving as happening Mm -hmm. and enter a dialogue about it. But I just want to name that out in the real world, it can be frustrating as we're moving into (laughs) frustration, because if I'm not getting a need met and I'm trying to talk to somebody that doesn't have any of this language I may experience frustration. And at some point, if the frustration um, gets to a place where I can't hold it anymore, Mm -hmm. I may move into rejection. Is that sort of how these structures might show up? It can, but I think it's a good time for us to talk about what frustration means in the context of the object relation dynamic. Thank you. Let's do that. And frustration is having experienced something, having the idea of something yummy and reaching for it. And the issue of frustration is we reach for it and either it disappears or we touch it and it goes away or we have it and then we can't keep it long enough. So we may not get it, or we may get it, and it's not enough, or we lose it before we feel satiated and full. So we continue to pursue. And that's what I think people have to understand about when frustration as a dominant affect is operating, we don't immediately go to rejection. 
when it's operating as a dominant affect, we keep pursuing because we just know it's out there. And even when we get something and we go, huh, you know, the golden apple has a worm in it. Okay, but there are going to be other golden apples. So let me go pursue that. So the object in the object relation definition of frustration, the object becomes an exciting object. It is tantalizing, literally, that we, and I'm saying that literally about the myth of tantalus, but let's not go there, that we become perpetual seekers. It's never good enough, so we keep seeking because we believe There's this golden something that if we keep pursuing it, we'll have it. So it's the, I always use this example, it's saving for and planning for a wonderful beach vacation. And you get there and the sky's blue and the weather's perfect. And you start thinking about next year, let's go to the mountains. You know, it's that incapacity to stay with the moment. And that all of the dominant affects pull us away from being in the moment because mm. we're trying to achieve something that isn't achievable through the egoic structure. So what I hear you naming is that this experience of dissatisfaction exists in all humans. So we can notice frustration inside of ourselves because We're not getting what it is we're imagining, we're wanting, or we've gotten it and our mind immediately goes to what's next or what's better. Mm -hmm. And in the frustration types, which are types one, four, and seven, this is more of a dominant experience for them than it would be for the Mm -hmm. other types. How would you frame that? Let's not call it a dominant experience. It's a foundational experience. Okay. So that the building of the personality is built on a frustration. So that for seven, it's a frustration with the nurturing figure. Mm -hmm. So seeking pleasure, Mm -hmm. and the pleasure is never enough. Seeking stimulation and fun and excitement, it's never quite enough. So there's this constant movement. Yeah, the one thing that confuses me a little bit as I think about the seven structure. So it's the frustration with, like you said, the nurturing or nourishing figure. And I'm just curious, is it always the figure or could it just be nourishment in general? Like if I, which did originally come from the mother, but as I touch into my own seven energy it feels like that quickly translates into whatever it is that I'm seeking to give me pleasure in my mm-hmm. environment. And you're yes. saying that that was originally set up by the nourishing figure. And now I'm just transitioning it to be anything that I'm perceiving to be nourishing. You're generalizing. The term generalizing. is generalizing. Got it. So that we generalize believing that Whatever nourishing, nourishment, being seen, being stimulated, getting pleasure, and depending on our dominant instinct, 
that will be a different, subtly different experience. Anything can take on those qualities. We can generalize to a delicious meal. We can generalize to a place or a group of people or a kind of experience that will stand in for the nurturing figure. Mm-hmm. We were talking about seven. So there's this original experience in the seven that I'm not getting what I want or need. So I or have to I got of, a little bit of it. Got it. Not enough. Not enough. Uh-huh. Or yeah. it was inadequate in some way. Right. Right. It wasn't enough. So it's up to me to go out seeking for that mm-hmm. which will satisfy me. Mm-hmm. And when we look at that point seven structure, we find that when the seven is fixated, they're sort of hopping from thing to thing to thing to learn how to handle that underlying fear or anxiety that my need won't be met because they're part of the fear center. Is that how mm-hmm. you would frame it? Sure. The fear that I won't get enough. Mm-hmm. So I, I really am making a difference here. It's not that it won't be met, but it won't be enough. Yeah, I like that. Okay. So yeah. I need to have the next thing and I need to have the next thing. So there's mm-hmm. almost this sensation in the seven, let's just speak specifically, that whatever just gave me the pleasure, I'm still sensing a void. And I respond to that mm-hmm. void by shifting my attention to, well, what might fill it next? What could be better than this? Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's an issue of satiation mm-hmm. or being satisfied. Yeah. So yeah. it's hard. That It's one of the tasks for the seven structure mm-hmm. is learning how to be satisfied. Yeah. Not giving up, yeah. but really deeply enjoying the moment. Yeah. And I would imagine that part of that is also learning how to presence that experience of some emptiness or some dissatisfaction and not necessarily mm. reacting to it, but holding yeah. it in the bigger context and shifting attention, noticing that my attention's wanting to move into the future or into mm. something else and inviting that attention to stay here and say, and what's wonderful about what's here? And yes, there's that emptiness and longing. Can I be with that without reacting to it? And that doesn't mean we never plan our next vacation, but that we really invite ourselves to acknowledge the pain or separation from the actual experience I'm in in the moment. It is, does mm-hmm. that resonate? Yes, and we're, I don't want this to be Pollyanna, but in our work, in what you call presencing to the experience of the moment, there's an understanding that we're being given a gift to really feel the truth in the moment. It's part of what loving the truth is about. And that if the truth in the moment is that I feel a whole, if I feel an emptiness, That's the truth. And I can love that truth, even if it's uncomfortable. Yeah. And the truth of that moment changes to the truth of a different experience. Mm -hmm. We can't hold on to emptiness any more than we can hold on to the pleasure of the moment. So it's more this noticing that as we rest with 
the emptiness or whatever dissatisfaction is arising, that even without doing anything, that will transform if we mm-hmm. have the capacity to just kind of be with that. Yes. And then we're not as hooked. Yeah. Yes. It inevitably transforms. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's the key moment or series of moments when we choose to stay with it instead of pursuing a way to fix it or alleviate it or something. Yeah. And what's coming up for me is just that we can almost get addicted to that next quick fix because we develop this habit loop inside of our brain where it's like, oh, I'm noticing this experience of emptiness and historically I have habitually done this in response to it. So I'm thinking about the habit loop and how part of that might just be recognizing, oh, look at the impulse to leave where I am right now. Can I be with that? Can I hold it? And can I more skillfully assess, well, this is what's going on in my reality. It doesn't mean that we stop pursuing things that we love or that that give us pleasure, but it has a different energy because there's not this reactive leaping towards it. There's more choice mm-hmm. around what would be most skillful in this moment and why might I shift or why might I stay? Is it something mm-hmm. like that? And that I choose to stay awaiting an inner shift. So the seven wants to think about what the shift will be, and it's setting aside the thinking and waiting and allowing the shift to happen, because it does, but it may not be on our timetable. Well, and I just want to make it real practical for a moment, just because examples like help me to understand. Um, Mm -hmm. So let's just imagine that I'm going on a vacation and that I've gotten into my hotel room and my hotel room is not what I imagined it was going to be. Mm -hmm. You know, like the heat doesn't work. It has a weird smell. Like there's like something that is frustrating me about Mm -hmm. my experience of my hotel room. Mm -hmm. So if I'm a seven, I might get really irritated, annoyed, stomp right down to the front desk and like demand a new room, which Mm -hmm. I may end up requesting a new room, but the invitation would be to really know that here's frustration, here's dissatisfaction, here's something not being Mm -hmm. the way that I was wanting it to be and sort of grounding and centering. And I may still go down to the front desk and see if I can get a room that doesn't have the problems that this one has. And I'm recognizing that this is more of like a strategy for an immediate need, but not really going to quell that existential frustration that arises in almost every situation. Mm-hmm. Is it is, is that is that a way that I might yeah. be with that? And of course you used whether intentionally or not, stomping down to the front desk is seven going to one. Yes. Yes. Thank you. So taking action, um, body yeah. center, movement. Yeah. So the, the seven would be imagining the better room. The going to one well, is taking action to make it happen with anger. Who knows what might arise Okay. With, without going to one. Okay. I mean, it could be just taking your bags and leaving, or becoming histrionic, hysterical. Who knows? Mm -hmm. What I'm trying to say is, it's a good example Mm -hmm. that you're using. 
And we don't want to define it too clearly. It's like giving an example. But I don't know about you, but in my years of Enneagram teaching, people will say, well, I do this and I don't do that. Therefore, I am this. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it's subtler than that. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not as though there's a checklist. And if you do A, B, and C, then that means you're a seven. Right. Because there are a lot of things we could do. Your example, which was really a good one, is that we pause and say, oh, I'm really disappointed. I'm angry. I'm frustrated. I'm blaming. I'm whatever I am. Here's my experience in the moment. And then pausing long enough to say, now, what do I want to do about it? Mm, yeah. That's what you said. And mm-hmm. that's that's exactly what we're talking about as the alternative to being reactive. Mm-hmm. Because in my object relation pattern, I might say, I might demonize people who run hotels. And they're the mother who never gave me everything I think I needed. And I'm devastated that I'm being treated this way again, and I go to victim mode. You know, all those things are possibilities. So we're noticing the narrative and the stories and like everything that gets lit up when my object relation gets triggered. Right. Yeah. Let's go to one. Let's do it. Let's talk about that. Because you mentioned that stomping down to the front desk is taking action, it's movement, and it's moving from seeking nurturing to seeking protection. Mm -hmm. And so I become my own protector Mm -hmm. when I am full of self-righteous rage. Mm -hmm. And I go down and demand that the one who was disappointed now gets taken care of. Mm, Okay. And so it's the frustration with the protecting figure. And just as seven becomes its her own nurturer, one becomes her own protector. Ah, okay. And so you we know, can see how people with a seven structure, the stress arrow goes to one historically right. because right. the seven isn't being nurtured. And so they shift into protecting themselves. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's right. Yeah. So that's so interesting, but... So let's talk about what does it look like when your core type is one? How would that look different? Because, you know, I'm imagining Mm -hmm. that the one is being frustrated by something that's happening in the environment. A one would also not enjoy an imperfection in their hotel room. Mm -hmm. So how would that arise differently? Yeah. Yeah. it's, It's more about the authority who should have Mm -hmm. done the right thing. Got it. Okay. You know, that I'm angry with the one who didn't follow up with staff to make sure my room is everything I need it to be. It's the authority figure isn't performing well. That totally makes sense. And so you're going to be really triggered by that authority figure Whereas I'm imagining a seven doesn't care so much about who's 
to blame. They just want it fixed. They want their experience right. to shift. Right. Whereas the one wants to make sure that somebody's taking accountability, that we know what the problem was here and that somebody knows about my dissatisfaction with that. And that fundamental disappointment mm-hmm. that I'm not being looked after, mm-hmm. not in a nurturing way, but that the structures around me are not in place to protect me, make me secure, mm-hmm. make it safe for me, mm-hmm. um, that somebody's supposed to be doing that and that somebody is falling short. Yeah. That totally so makes I sense. always have to get step in yeah. and make it better because this figure falls short, but I'm going to find that ultimate security yes. through finding the right structure. Yeah, that really resonates with me. You know, my mom's a point one, and she just had to go through taking care of my grandparents who were in assisted living facilities. Mm-hmm. And as many of us who have had that experience know that there's a lot of problems in the structures that are dealing with oh, long-term yes. care right now. So yes. there are innumerable things to be frustrated with. Yeah. Right. And so yes. we've all probably had that experience if we've been in that situation to experience frustration. But what you're bringing to mind for me is the many, many conversations I had with my mom where she was going to the administration, the management, the nurse, you know, because that protective figure for her Mm -hmm. parents was not showing up the way that Mm -hmm. she had expected it to for the money they were spending, blah, blah, blah. And I know that this is also reflective in, wow, like I'm seeing how this works when I'm needing this type of care who's going to protect me. Mm, And so there's mm, a lot of anxiety around, I would love it if these structures all got their, you know, shit together so that I knew I would be protected when I'm in that situation. And I don't want to feel like I have to be the protective figure for all these other people that Mm. are suffering this. And type one, the the self-image at point at level four is the educator. And so I'm thinking of an example some years ago when my father was in the hospital, and it was a really bad situation. Um, He eventually came home with hospice and died a few weeks later. His younger sister, my aunt, was a nurse administrator, had been in the Air Force, and a nurse educator. And her approach to dealing with this frightening and frustrating situation was calling to the nursing staff to task about following nursing protocols. Yeah. Because for her, that was the structure that she knew best and could try to implement. Yeah. And it didn't really help, of course, for her to be lecturing the nursing staff about how they were falling short But nonetheless, we see ourselves, the more stress we're under, the more we see ourselves being activated. Yeah, that's so interesting. Can I throw something into this space that I've been hearing floating around the Enneagram community around object relations that I think is interesting? And I just want to ping it off you and see how it lands with you. Yeah. So I'm hearing that some people, like when we think of a point one, for example, 
they can also experience frustration like in their own home when they're the only person that would do something. Like, for example, we know that many type ones appreciate order, cleanliness, mm-hmm. and maybe they can't attend to their task until there's a certain amount of order in their environment. So there's mm-hmm. not really, like, say you live alone, there's not like a protective figure there that's supposed to come in. You haven't hired somebody to do this for you. It's your own motivation that's driving you to create mm-hmm. the order in your space. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I've been hearing it said that since you know, ones are a part of the body center, that if we look at just eight, nine, and one, which all have a different object relation as we're talking about it, yes. but that they all have a particular relationship to sensation coming in through the body. And that when I'm noticing that there's something coming in, in a sensory way that I'm not liking, that I either, you know, as an attachment type in the body sensation, if these sensations are coming in and I'm not liking them, I might dissociate because I don't have any barriers against it. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I'm like an eight in the body center and sensation, I don't even let that sensation penetrate me. There's like a rejection stance to sensations that are not going to be doing it, like are not, Mm -hmm. are not going to be safe for me. And with the one, it's like they're porous the sensation comes in, but it's almost like they don't have rejection and they don't have dissociation sort of as defenses. And so the frustration gets activated and they start doing things in their environment to alleviate the frustration that they're having with the sensations that they're experiencing. So Mm. it's, you know, similar and different from our traditional view of object relations. And I was just curious how sort of combining the center that it comes from along with the structure of the type with frustration, mm-hmm. like how, how does that land with you when people are sort of merging well, things in this way? Two things come up. One is everything you described sounded like more of a sensate type mm-hmm. than an intuitive type okay. and more of a self-preservation instinct than the other two instincts. Got it. Okay. And so the interpretation of what the body triad means, I think is a question here. My understanding through the Gurdjieffian teaching is that the personality structure is the effort to attend to the separation from oneness and fullness, that we experience the pain, frankly, of being dropped into a physical body. And we create a personality structure in order to compensate for that, to try to deal with that. And my understanding of the triads from more of a Gurdjieffian perspective is that it is the imbalance it is the, the center of the imbalance that is important in the triad so that eight overuses the belly center. Nine can dissociate from the belly center or do the opposite and just be a couch potato. And one uses the body center as the compensatory energy so that ones do, ones take action, Mm -hmm. 
but in a focused way to do what's right. Mm -hmm. And so to interpret the body triad as body sensations, to me, doesn't quite fit with that understanding because the triad is about the structure of the personality, mm-hmm. not the experience of a sensory experience. Okay. And I love how you're talking about a sensory experience because that whole idea of like a clean house, I love how you may- named that that would be more important for somebody when I'm talking about a sensor versus intuitive preferences. Yes. Or, yes. and that's a Myers Briggs thing. Or when we're looking at the instincts, it's a self-preservation concern. So you could have a point one that doesn't actually have a clean house at all Absolutely. because their intuitive preference, if they were to have an intuitive preference, it may yes. be around ideas. And I love this because I actually started this podcast because my one energy shows up in that I'm wanting clarity around ideas that are being spoken mm. of. And my mm-hmm. house is never orderly like a one, but I can be very one-ish around ideas, which is why I like to dive down and nitpick and get clarity yes. around all of these different points. So that an, resonates a lot. An example, I have a very good friend who's a social dominant one, and the main floor of her house is pristine because that's where people come. Her upstairs office is chaotic, and her garage is chaotic. And it bothers her, but she can't organize her energy because her instinctual energy motivates her just to keep clean where other people will be. So it's not for her own sake so much as it is for the community or the family. And I think it is a misunderstanding to say that all people who identify with type 1 are orderly. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, physically orderly. Right, exactly. Like their order and their longing to improve or reform is going to show up somehow, somewhere, some way, but not necessarily in the stereotypical memes that you might have with that type. Yeah, it it might not be physical at all. Uh Uh-huh, awesome. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense because in the Enneagram community, some people are talking about object relations and saying that, you know, we obviously, when we first come into this world, like you said, we're going to have a relationship to like no longer being in the womb where all of our sensory environment was controlled. And now we're thrust into this world where, oh, I get hungry and I have a wet diaper and I have all these things that happen that create sensations that I will have a reaction to and I'll deal yes. with it in a certain way. And then what comes on second is more that heart-centered, like the gaze, like once the baby can see and make mm-hmm. eye contact with the mother or whatever figures are in the environment, mm-hmm. that's sort of when we're going to start organizing our relationship to being seen and the gaze and mm-hmm. more heart-centered needs And then when object permanence Mm. starts to come online and we're forming more abstract Mm. thoughts, that this is where sort of the head center or thinking center sort of more comes online. So you can kind of see that there could be some sequential formation Mm. of these in the development. And when we're talking about object relations and we're talking about the nurturing function or the nurturing figure 
that seems to come online first. Like it's your very first contact point is that nurturing figure and Mm -hmm. your awareness of sort of my sense of protection or the protective figure that seems to me to not come online until after we have an experience with a nurturing figure. Cause like we said, Mm -hmm. we all have attachment in some way. And then our sense of a more global community or like my family structure, I don't know which would come online first, like protective or family, or if it even matters. But do you hear what I'm saying about how like we all have an experience with a nurturing figure and the thought that pops into my head is that if we're born with a certain biological predisposition to have an Enneagram type, which I think many people believe, it's Mm -hmm. just that sort of the place we get tripped up or this foundation that the rest of our structure gets built upon Mm -hmm. may be activated at different times in development. So if I'm not Mm -hmm. one of the types that's attached to the nurturing figure, which let's just review, that's the three, that's the seven, that's the help me. That's eight. Eight, yeah. It's not attached, but it's that the nurturing figure is a stimuli. Primary as the other primary. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So if I'm not an eight or a seven or a three, then the foundation that's building my personality just kind of gets triggered, activated, built up around a little bit later in my development. It doesn't all have to be happening chronologically in development. This is where I think people get confused because it's like people are attached in some way to the chronology of it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I hear what you're saying. And I've had similar thoughts. Quite frankly, I know we like to have a tidy understanding of things, but we don't know what the infant is experiencing. Right. And for one infant, the presence of warmth and food may be more important. And another infant may just be relishing the intimacy mm-hmm. of the connection with mm-hmm. that which they're enveloped by. Yeah. You know, we don't know. And this is the instinctual drives. If we're born with a certain instinctual stack preference, then that's going to also affect mm-hmm. like what yeah, we're caring what about mean. as yes. an infant. Yeah. Right. So I love that you're saying this. And so what I want to leave the listener with is this reality that all of this is theoretical because we can't actually go to an infant and say and know or measure specifically. And it's going to be different and it's going to be so nuanced because we all come into this world with different temperaments and different instinctual stacks and different sensitivities. And so to have all of these models, I would say that if you're a student on a personal growth path or you're working with others and you find these modalities to be helpful to just stay porous or open in some way to all these different frames that we're using to support ourselves or another person. And right now what we're talking about here today are object relations in a more traditional sense of the nurturing, the protective, the community or family figure And there can be other theories that influence that, but there is this core model that really has been well-researched and that we have a lot to um, sort of hang our wisdom on. 
And um, so to me, you know, I've, I've been teaching for a while and sometimes I always just go, well, how it works, you know, that we'll do an exercise in class and I'll do a demo and by golly, it works. Yeah. And that's really our effort to understand is partly for the satisfaction of the knowledge mm-hmm. and we validate the truth of it to the degree that it impacts us in our own internal and external lives, our own inner reality and the effectiveness in dealing with other people in relationship in a way that seems beneficial to us and them. Makes so much and sense. so that's how we learn. Yeah. And people articulate things according to what's meaningful to them. Mm-hmm. So talking about how body types sense things, whoever came up with that, that was meaningful to them. Yeah. So I always encourage people to try it out to see if, in fact, it's not do we uh, make the facts fit the theory, Mm -hmm. but if we have this theory, is it useful to us? I love that. Yeah. Yeah. That makes so much sense. And it makes me really excited to sign up for your class and actually experience your embodiment exercises, because I know that in the first seven weeks, you're going to give us a lot of the the theory and sort of the understanding around it. But then the second seven weeks is really about the embodiment of these different structures Mm -hmm. in this way. And when you step into them, I'm imagining that there might be benefit from the actual experience of multiple structures, because I think that when people are talking about things like tri-type and tri-fix, that they're just highlighting that I feel more connected to the hangups around certain energetic Mm -hmm. types than others. And so Mm -hmm. it's not like, uh, why would I sign up for seven weeks? Because I really just want the embodiment exercise that's 4.3. It's that we can find all of this inside of all of us. And when it arises, now we have a modality that we can try to work with it. And as we're going through the nine different embodiment exercises over the seven-week course, we sort of discover within ourselves what's unlocking something. Mm -hmm. So if somebody else is presenting a completely different frame that's unlocking something for you, yay, use that. Because at the end of the day, it's really about where do I notice that I get stuck and Mm -hmm. how do I unwind myself? So that I can experience more connection, more ease, more joy. All of the essence qualities are emerging in my experience Mm -hmm. and I feel less fixated and I feel less stuck. That's how you know you're on your right theory and your right Right. path, right? Exactly. I love that. Let's talk about four for just a moment before we end. Let's do it. Yeah. Um, Because it's the frustration with the family. Mm-hmm. It's the frustration with home mm-hmm. and where we belong. Mm-hmm. And another friend grew up in a family in which the, his father was a five and alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And his mother was nine and just kind of smoothed everything over. And as a four, he was sensitive to the dynamics 
And we believe his brother and sister were both nines as well. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of everything's okay and no problems here. No shared reality. (laughs) Four is like, what the heck? How can you be saying this? Yeah. So he's frustrated Uh that his experience isn't being validated or mirrored. And often it can happen trying to find that sense of belonging or clan someplace else. Yeah. So children who get on their bikes and go down the street to have dinner in somebody else's house, finding family. My friend was on the swim team. That team was family. You know, finding other ways to have belonging. Yeah. But it's never enough. Yeah. So if we think about these three types that all want belonging, and that's the nine, four, and five, we're seeing that there's a different strategy for working with this feeling of my environment or my container is um, disappointing me. So like I'm thinking of the five, which we'll talk more about on our next episode, but as a rejection type kind of amputates themselves off from community and finds more solace in knowledge. Whereas like then- And wait just a minute, though, knowledge, but what's never spoken about so much is that five creates an inner world. An inner community. An inner community. Yeah. Through computer games or Dungeons and Dragons or... So they don't need people in the outside world because it's all inside of here. And the people then they do interact with are people who can share in this, Got it. in this inner reality. Totally so makes sense. So if I'm playing Dungeons and Dragons and you're really into it too, we can connect. Yeah. But we're not connecting about the larger world. Right. We're connecting about this alternate reality. Yeah. So when created. a five d- connects with the heart and more this shared humanity when they connect mm. with their own shared humanity, then they can have more meaningful relationships with others not in their little zone is what we might see. Well, but they've started by having relationships with the people who are in their little zone. Uh-huh. People uh-huh. say that fives aren't emotional. The It's the belly center that's not well developed for mm-hmm. fives. The heart center's there. Okay. It's just not shared openly. Got it. But fives are very emotional Yeah, often. Well, and I think but you that, have to know them well to find out. <laughs> yeah. Well, and in some ways, the withdrawn types are maybe the most sensitive because they withdraw when, you know, it's like, I need to remove myself. Mm. I, I don't know if that's true or not, but it was just something that was coming up for me is that if you're withdrawn versus assertive versus dependent or whatever you use that compliant, whatever that mm. term is, that the withdrawn types, kind of opt out from the situation they're not enjoying in some way, shape, or form. Mm. The assertive, but but now we're confusing things, so I don't necessarily want to go down that rabbit hole. The thing is that nine, four, and five, the withdrawn types, are the three types in which the belly center is the least developed. Got it. So it's about not feeling at ease with showing up. Okay, thank you. So they And so pulling back from showing up. Okay, Totally makes sense. I love all the different frames that we can hold this stuff in. It's super, yes. super That's helpful. really what I mean about testing it out. Uh-huh. And if it works, then we pretty much know the theories 
on track. Yeah. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And so when we're talking about fours as the frustration type, there's just this sense that like my family system just didn't really get me. Like I'm mm-hmm. different in some way. And yes. that's where that comparing mind or that insecurity of the four might also come up because it's like, oh, well, if they're not getting me, it's either something wrong with them or it's something wrong with me. And we see them right. kind of fluctuate between these poles of, you know, delusions of grandeur or victimhood. There's a lot of lability right. sort of in the emotional experience because I'm That's trying to exactly figure out right. why am I not fitting in here? Mm-hmm. Okay, That's right. And what we don't often hear about for is that there is an underlying desire to fit, to find where I fit. Yeah, yeah. And it's the places I find to fit are never enough. Yeah. So I go seeking more. And I love just highlighting that wherever we're finding frustration, whether it's in the core type of one, four, and seven, or the frustrations that we find inside of ourselves, mm. that wherever there's frustration, we can also find the inner critic. It's like something isn't okay about me, or something mm. isn't okay about you, or we can really start to use any of the modalities that we're discovering for inner critic work to also work with the frustration structure, it seems. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and we'll find when we talk about rejection, of course, we find the nature of the inner critic uh, takes a slightly different spin. Yeah. But that's next time. Well, and that's when the instincts, I think, also show how the inner critic shows up. If it's, you know, we're self-pres dominant, the inner critic may be more around work or my home or things like this. If we're social dominant, it more be around my social concerns and sexual dominant, it may be more about my partner or my own attractiveness Mm. or, you know, so I think that that's another helpful way to just understand the relationship to the instinctual stack. But we also want to remember that we have all three instincts. Yep. So, you know, our dominant one will show up. Sometimes we pull back to the secondary and then what's sometimes called the blind spot or the least developed. Yep. Sometimes that's got a lot of energy attached to it. Absolutely. An- another person who's uh, least dominant or least developed and self-pres never feels able to fully take care of himself, to yeah. look after himself, because yeah. he doesn't have instinct for it. Absolutely. So, well, Belinda, anyway. thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think that this was a really great review of the frustration types and the whole frustration affect. And uh, yeah, I'm really excited. The next time we talk, we can dive into rejection. Is there any final words you want to say about frustration before we wrap for today? That it's normal. Yeah. That we reach for something that we believe will be the answer. Yeah. And it's never going to be enough because the answer is not out there. Mm. Yeah. You know, it's, it's finding it inside through revealing our true nature. Yeah. And that's a lesson for all of us. Thank you, Belinda. If you enjoyed this, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and various Android platforms. If you leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, it helps a lot. If you have any questions you'd like addressed in a future episode, please email me at contact at enneagramblindspots.com. 
I also offer a wide variety of services at my practice while SNSMD, including typing services, Enneagram coaching, nonviolent communication training, and mindfulness trainings for working with stress, anxiety, and food cravings. Feel free to call my office at 847-850-8185 to schedule a free consultation.